Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Get More Students podcast. I'm your co-host, Alex Asher, CEO of LearnCube. And I'm Herbert Gerzer, founder of Herbert Gerzer Digital. And today we have a very, very special guest uh, <laughs> on the podcast, our very own Alex Asher. Welcome, Alex. Well, hey, thanks, Herbert. No, I, we, we just were, were chatting about it and we realized that we've got lots of people listening to the Get More Students podcast and really enjoying it. Hmm. Um, but we really wanted to focus on one particular angle here, which is product market fit. Um, I know that Herbert, you also get exposed to a lot of people that are wanting to use more technology in their businesses. And I feel like the story that I'll tell about LearnCube is very applicable to anyone that is in education, ed tech, uh, and or kind of thinking of both of those things as, as a, in a lot of ways, a lot of companies are starting to uh, kind of merge that technology and education together, regardless of how they started. So it's uh, it's an exciting it's an exciting topic to talk about, and I'm excited to tell my story if it's of, of use to you. I think so, and uh, I would love to know uh, a little bit about your your backstory, Alex, and sure. I guess how you got started and uh, how you got into the education and the ed tech uh, industry. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that journey? Yeah, it was actually a really, um, just like many stories, and I, I'm sure other entrepreneurs will, will resonate with this, but it's very much a zigzag from like point <laughs> A to, to Z. It's very, it, it's never a straight line. And so part of that starting point with LearnCube was actually meeting Dan, who's the founder of LearnCube. Mm -hmm. uh, and we actually met just before we went to a entrepreneurship program called Startup Chile, based in Santiago in Chile. Correct. And it's a kind of a wild uh, program, but it was basically like, hey, um, if you have a business, come over to Chile for six months. We'll put 40,000 USD into your business, but you have to kind of give back in a way of supporting the local startup scene and trying to create a, uh, a founder-centric kind of culture in Chile, which you know, I thought was amazing. And I'd already lived in Chile as, in my fourth year of university, so I spoke wow. fluent Spanish as well. So I was like, even better, I'm going back to see, see some friends. And I met Dan just before, who's an Australian, and we met there. And, uh, and that's kind of where the, the starting of the twists begin. Um, yeah, but and we that is there. where the idea for for LearnCube. Um, it was, uh, and it wasn't actually. So it wasn't my idea. And uh, again, I think people will resonate that with a business, you can kind of join any part of that that journey. And in this particular instance, Dan had started the idea from wanting to um, practice his Spanish with his buddies in Argentina when he was mm -hmm. in Mexico. <laughs> Uh, right. Again, this is a little bit of a convoluted story, but you know, he was trying to practice with his buddies. He set up the original virtual classroom to be able to practice speaking with his buddies because he didn't feel like he was progressing where he was. And um, that's how the virtual classroom came up. And then when he was in Chile, his original idea wasn't going to work. And he was like, wait a minute. Um, particularly here in Chile, like people really, you know, for what they're wanting to do and, and the kind of global ambitions that a lot of the people here in Chile have, they don't have the levels of English needed. And so it's like, hey, maybe I can create my own online language school, mm -hmm. which is actually how it started. It wasn't actually originally a technology business as such as it was technology and the teachers themselves. And he ran that, mm -hmm. I think, for a good little while while he was in Chile. I was working on another pro project at the same time. We were kind of mm -hmm. friends and 
uh, you know, he's a developer. I'm sort of more sort of the business side. And so we had this wonderful kind of chemistry, but working on our different projects sure. until um, afterwards, I continued on my project. He continued on what became LearnCube. But he was invited to now, <laughs> there we go, uh, across short to London, where he was invited to the Emerge Education Incubator. Uh-huh. And uh, while he was there, part of the terms of that was they were like, we're interested, but we think it would be a much stronger business, not as a school, but as a SaaS product. So a technology mm-hmm. um, service alone. And Dan was like, hey, well, that's my skill set anyway. This sounds brilliant. And so we went over there. We, I think he spent about six months before, again, moving closer to me where I was in New Zealand. Um, and for the first couple of years, um, he was by himself with with a few other partners, and then I joined uh, in two thousand and seventeen. Wow, amazing! Yeah. And how did that uh, decision process for you look like? Because you were based in New Zealand, yeah. and I know that you're based in London now, so halfway or <laughs> halfway around the world. Um, that must have been a huge move and a big decision for you. Yeah, so. London comes like another three years later because in 2017, I just had to make the choice of like, was I going to stick with my own kind of business, which Mm -hmm. um, was okay, but I really saw the opportunity with LearnCube straight from the beginning. Um, A kind of interesting background to me is my grandfather was a professor of German at Auckland University in New Zealand, you know. you know, very prominent actually when he did it straight after the Second World War and and was a huge lover of languages, which is, I guess, passed that to me. And I speak sort of German through school and then I switched to Spanish at university. And so when I heard of LearnCube, uh, particularly around the sort of tutoring and language business, I was like, hey, this really resonates yeah. with m- what I love and my skill set. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how much I'd enjoy, you know, working in a business focused on education until you're in it and you're like, wow, you know, like we really are opening doors and opportunities for people. And, and so we started that in 2017. And I have to go to another story for you, Herbert, um, because I think it's just, a, it's just kind of a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a test for both of us. But um, before I joined LearnCube, I had promised to myself that I was going to finish my circumnavigation of the North Island of New Zealand by running. Oh, wow. Uh, so I had already run down the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand mm-hmm. in 2011. And before I kind of started this, I was like, no, I really want to run up the west coast and kind of complete the circuit, which is about 1,600 kilometers and wow. included some of the largest harbors in, in, that I was swimming across uh, in the southern hemisphere. And I say that mainly because it was a, a Dan became my support crew for the last two weeks. So my final two <laughs> no weeks, Dan, he was, before, cheering, on, he was cheering on before I signed the like, yeah, I'm going to join you. Him oh. and Aura, who was one of the other co-founders at the time, they were my support crew. And I thought, hey, what an amazing yeah. thing, A, for them to come over and support me before even starting with LearnCube. But, you know, it was a pretty, uh, you know, because we were friends, but, you know, this really sort of brought us together, you know, when I'm running 100 kilometers in my last night and he's sort of meeting me at 3 a.m. with, you know, sandwiches and whatnot. It was uh, it was quite a wild, uh, I, I guess, even on his side, uh, an interview process uh, before we kind of really, really started together. Amazing. Love yeah. that. Love that. 
We um we talked about kind of splitting uh product market fit into kind of five steps, um so to say, and uh, I think we probably uh, maybe uh, slightly skipped the first one. Um, but you did talk about where the idea for for LearnCube uh, came about, and so Dan was working on uh, transitioning from a language school uh, provider or a language provider to a SaaS or a software as a service company. Yeah. Um, when you joined, uh, were you still part of the ideation process to really bring that to, to, to market so that you had a solid uh, kind of product? I actually think I joined more in the MVP to initial customers area. So, mm -hmm. and maybe even in kind of three and four, because Dan had the idea that was mm. kind of in 2014 to 2015. He had built the MVP in that time mm -hmm. um, and had just, I think we had less than 30 customers. So it was a really, you know, a very, might have even been less, you know, it was a very small number of customers in that. Um, we were at that point really focused on language education. We hadn't mm -hmm. sort of slightly broadened to that tutoring kind of market as more the umbrella with language sort of sitting underneath. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I joined, actually within the first, three months uh, we started working with Babel for example so it was a wow. really big change from like yeah we've got a, a couple of like quite you know to be fair to, to Dan he'd done a really great job of digging in finding some initial customers finding some validation that people would want to teach online which again mm -hmm. back in 2016 2017 was still fairly early they were mm -hmm. willing to pay for a service that delivered all of the features you know um, the good thing is because he had built an online language school before selling the online language school software, you know, it did have everything from user management to scheduling, uh, time sure. zone management, all those sorts of things that, again, he had to solve for his business and are totally relevant to any online language business. And so um, we were st sort of starting with those initial customers. And so my job in a way was to relook at the strategy plus you know, how can we turn this from, you know, I think at this stage we might have, we definitely weren't able to pay ourselves properly, um, but go, you know, to a couple of thousand dollars worth of revenue to, mm -hmm. to kind of being able to actually become a sustainable business. Sure. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are, I mean, most most people are familiar with the kind of idea stage, the concept mm -hmm. stage of 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 this uh, of the the product market fit. But maybe you could take us quickly through MVP. I don't know if everyone, Definitely. all of our listeners, are familiar with the term M MVP. So MVP is your minimum viable product, um, and I think it's. Definitely something like uh, I've built a number of businesses, to be fair, a lot of them have failed because they didn't mm. get past actually stage three. You know, we got initial customers, but never got to kind of a growing base. Mm -hmm. But MVP, uh, one of the key things about it is that it, it is really the minimum. And it is also the minimum viable, meaning that it can't be so minimalistic that it, it doesn't work at all. Mm. But um, it, it really also needs to answer key assumptions with that MVP. And so I think the MVP is like, is it something that people will pay money for? Uh, I think that pay money for is a hugely important component because it's not hard to find people to try something. <laughs> Hence, you know, we've got a free trial on, a, on the LearnQ website. 
but to pay money for it, you'll see mm. that there's a, a much smaller fraction of those that will do that. And same with any education business. Um, so getting people to pay money for that is, is one of the most important things about that MVP stage. Yeah. Um, and it gives you something to start bouncing the ball. Like if you don't have a ball, there's nothing to bounce it again. You're just mm. throwing ideas and, and people will give you all sorts of, I wouldn't say fake, but probably unhelpful advice and feedback until you have something in front of them mm. because your imagination and their imagination might be quite different. Exactly. Of course, it's very important to get that feedback, but it's really, you know, do people use it that, you know, the, the rubber hits the road. And um, so I think, yeah, with that MVP, it's, there's a lot of experimentation. Um, yep. And I would also say one of the things I've noticed is that people are more likely to over-engineer their MVP than under-engineer under it. Like an MVP, in my view, actually, this is one of the things I learned much earlier on, which, uh, again, maybe if I'd applied it to my previously failed businesses, uh, <laughs> they, they would have been more successful. I would have saved a lot more time. But the MVP might just be a landing page where you send people to it and do they click to sign up? Even if exactly. you have nothing to offer, mm. it's not disingenuous. It is, are they willing to commit to even mm. signing up? before you sign up really for possibly three, 10, 20 years of your life yep. focused on building a solution for that pain point. So a lot of the times I reckon the MVP is a landing page that is this your problem? This is the solution. And it could just be, um, you know, Photoshop diagrams, like visual cues. Would this solve your problem? Mm. If it would sign up for our early release or, um, pay $1 and get mm -hmm. lifetime access or something like that. Um, ideally, you want to get people to pay for it because if they don't pay for it, I know that people really battle with it. It's like, yeah, but I don't have anything. It's not worth anything. If they're not willing to pay even a dollar, just think what that means to them. It's not really, you know, when are they going to be willing to pay, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20, 100, $1,000, $5,000 for it? So, yeah, I think a key part of the MVP stage is ensuring that you're getting paid for it. Um, I do think the other aspect of MVP that is probably overlooked is is also in the market, ensuring there's like a minimum size market for what you want to offer as well. Like it's not so niche that there's no way of getting enough market to satisfy your ambitions. But generally, that's not the problem again. <laughs> generally, yeah. the problem is that people... Um, push to far too great a market. Um, we've always been very focused with LearnCube on language education initially. We only grew to tutoring when we felt that we actually had the team to be sure. able to serve that. And we felt that it was serving effectively the same solution so well and they were so mm -hmm. aligned that there wasn't a huge amount of uh, concern with growing that. But for example, we cut out the areas that we didn't feel that we could serve. Like certainly right now, we are not in the business of serving general schools and general universities. We yep. get approached all the time, but we're not the right fit for those. And so again, talking about product market fit, we know that. And so rather than waste resources on following RFPs, like uh, requests for proposals, which can take oh. you know, days of time oh. and have incredibly <laughs> low 
chances of success mm -hmm. and even if you succeed are so price in insane that you make no money to be able to build the business so again mm -hmm. we just were like look that's just not part of our product market fit our product market fit is in the tutoring language area so that's where those initial customers come in and customers is the important piece not just users but people that pay you money exactly um and i think getting some of those initial customers and, and sort of taking this um in our story uh dan had already been able to show we had some initial customers we were unsure mm -hmm. exactly you know there was so few that we couldn't really make too many assumptions about what size they were what stage of business they were mm -hmm. but then we kind of found that that kind of sweet spot as we we built that customer base and could see which regions realistically we could win on mm -hmm. um, another example is like china is arguably one of the probably the biggest single language learning market in the world and we have never gone after it um because we never felt that we would have a product market fit there and also right. our competitors would be much stronger than us and also the firewall would uh, offer some really difficult challenges mm. that we have zero power over uh, yeah. with a great firewall so th these are just I think examples and I think these are examples apply to all education business in the same way mm. uh, in terms of knowing what is not going to work even though it seems so appealing like it seems so appealing there was particularly i mean right up until what last year 2021 the chinese market was growing like yeah. crazy the um, market that everyone wanted to tap into right mm -hmm. mm. And, and even in COVID, you know schools and universities were like hey we want to go online mm. and it was so tempting for LearnCube to go hey let's do that um but we were like no we need to to stay on our niche yeah. and focus on that initial customer base, build that up, build a dense enough audience that we can actually build some real momentum in our market, which again is language learning and tutoring. Well, that was definitely the right decision. Uh, had you uh, gone for China, that might have been a bit of a dead end <laughs> uh, right now. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and we wouldn't be playing to our strengths. Like We really get on with our customers. We very much see them as partners. And I think part of that is we've got very strong cultural fits with them. Like People really enjoy working with us and we really enjoy working with those customers. And not that we wouldn't in China, but we don't have a strength there. We don't have the language uh, and we didn't have people in our team that could speak fluent Chinese. And, and, and so it was harder for us to, to really win there. And I think sometimes... It's also about knowing where you can win uh, and focusing exactly. on that area. Yeah. So you had your initial customers, you were getting feedback from mm -hmm. them, uh, you were analyzing kind of their behaviors and, and the, the demographics. Um, going into stage four about growing your base and expanding um, possibly into different markets, what did that look like for you? So um, we've always been a global business. That's luckily being one of the things that we started with. So we weren't so worried about the global aspect. Um, I think we've, what do I say? In a way, it's been a lot of the time, it's more about knowing what to say no to than what to say mm -hmm. yes to. Yeah. And so kind of what I was alluding to before, like rather than sort of worrying so much about um oh, you know, we've, we've got some customers in the UK and Germany. Um, oh, let's kind of branch out. Let's see if we can get people in, in China and Japan and kind of um, Vietnam and various other countries. And we've had organic 
um, like improvements in those markets, but mm-hmm. we haven't, we've focused our attention on the markets that we feel that we can start getting some, um, like, yeah, momentum with, right? Like we don't want to be with a hundred customers in a hundred countries. Mm-hmm. I think in a way we would be able to serve our customers much better and having a, a much narrower range of, um, customers, uh, in certain regions that we can support better. We know what their problems are because there are nuances as well that we can serve. And again, that's why we didn't choose the Chinese market, which was far more prescriptive. Like the companies were scaling like crazy. So it wasn't like, how do I get a hundred teachers that are really happy and enjoying the product? It's like, how can I onboard, you know, a thousand teachers every month? Mm. Um, and do a high volume, you know, like a VIP kid style uh, sure. service. They were just totally different, different nuances and markets. Um, another example was like, we've had people approach us for marketplaces and mm-hmm. we're like, you know, like we can solve that, but that's not our kind of core focus. We, we're better positioned at the stage to focus more on like people that are centrally managing their tutors or length or, or teachers. Um, because a marketplace model is more about supply and demand. You need lots of other features that are all about, you know, taking applications from teachers, taking applications, uh, ensuring that teachers are vetted, like doing that all automatically, which is what you need for a marketplace compared to what we focus on, which is more around they've already been vetted. You have a a smaller number Mm -hmm. of highly qualified teachers or tutors, and then it's it's kind of building up that kind of business rather than, you know, the, the number of times I've had people, um, we actually work with Preply, but the number of times I've had cus- um, prospects kind of say, hey, we want to build another Preply. I'm like, that's fine, but that's, you know, the marketplace are kind of taken in terms of, unless it's a niche marketplace, these larger kind of marketplaces already have got their hundreds of millions of dollars of funding and are, are really dominating the, the kind of major channels that you would need to, to win with marketplaces. So, Sure. Yeah. I wonder if you could share some of the channels and uh, kind of marketing efforts that you have uh, used to to grow your base. Um, I think that would be really interesting um, for our listeners. No worries. So uh, to be fair, in the initial customers kind of stage, there is just a bit of hustle, you know, and I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Dan was actually quite good at that even when he started as well, even though he's a developer. So, you know, um, this wasn't kind of a natural kind of go-to for him, but he was very good at, at hustling those initial customers and hustling in, in, in a positive way, which just means meeting meeting potential prospects, yep. impressing them with your passion and vision mm-hmm. and getting early, you know, people that can ride, you know, take the ride with you. And um, when I joined, it was probably, actually, we, we tried to, to focus on getting some, some larger customers. We'd been getting some like organic small you know schools at that point um but we want we were really looking for larger customers sure um firstly our website was very important we were able to get organic reach and um we've always had very strong keywords uh sorry Mm -hmm. keyword ranking on google uh partly from being there early um and partly from doing some smart things on um on our website and never doing black hat kind of marketing right. with with seo um 
so that I guess stage one was getting the website and the kind of fundamentals for SEO right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a bit of luck there as well because we had competitors that really went aggressively for SEO, but with mm-hmm. all these black hat tricks. Mm. Yeah, uh, there were two companies in India in particular that I, I think their reputation is completely bombed anyway. Wow. Um, but they did a lot of just like I think just I, I mean you you know lots of backlinks to nowhere like lots of just the weird sneaky stuff, stuff. Yeah. sneaky stuff and they got mm. hit. I just remember seeing you know their their just visibility just completely mm. caved. I don't even know if they've been able to recover from that. Um, but just being quite. You know, just genuine with what we were doing. I think we we sort of got that as our kind of our core kind of pillar. Mm-hmm. The second thing I was talking about, sort of these larger customers, we were actually going up to to conferences. So I was having to fly over okay. to Europe. We had recognised that Europe was our kind of key base. We had already got Babel at that time and and had looked for some other customers. And I think really looking after those slightly larger customers, going visiting them in person, went a long way in those early days. Now, again, you know, if somebody's listening, it depends on your business. You can kind of take that example the way you want, but that was a channel that that we identified because we could go to a conference. We didn't have to be an exhibitor, but we could still meet with the exhibitors, and those exhibitors were actually our our customers or prospects rather than the actual um, attendees. So that was one way that we. Um, we got in with some of those larger customers. I think those larger customers then have the knock-on effect of you have some credibility. Mm-hmm. And, and so then people are like, oh, I saw you do this for Babel. Um, can you do this for me? And and, and so that yeah. kind of built some natural momentum too. Um, I think we haven't probably been quite as successful with some of the advertising strategies that we've employed. So I'll be kind of upfront with that. That's an area mm-hmm. that we're still working on. Uh, we are a, a self-funded business as well, so we don't have huge budgets to kind of really throw money into experimentation. And um, instead, we're yeah, you know, we've got to use the resources that we have. So content is becoming and has become a much bigger part of our strategy. You know, podcasts like this, I think, <laughs> can help us build relationships with our prospects and future customers without us having to meet with them. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes people don't want to meet with you. Like, I'd love to meet with with more prospects more often, but sometimes they need to listen to a podcast, a webinar, or um, read some content before they feel enough trust to kind of go the extra step to, to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think we're um, on the con side, we, we even started sort of these webinars as well, as you remember, Herbert, like providing some kind of live events where people can get to know you. Exactly. Uh, I think... For us, it's, uh, I, I really love this phrase, like, the you know, marketing in general is like, there's no silver bullet. You need to look for lead bullets. Uh, what, yeah. that, what that means is you need lots of, lots of uh, techniques that kind of build up your, your marketing base. And I feel that's been true for us. Sure. Um, I would love to say that we've got everything right. But again, just like everyone listening here, we're all trying, we're all experimenting, failing yeah. sometimes and getting some mm. things right. Of course. Um, so I think those are kind of the, the some of just some of the ideas that have worked well for us. But um, one thing I, you know, it's not our experience isn't going to be the same for everyone. Like we're looking for language and tutoring company owners mm-hmm. as our kind of core market. 
now that they're quite a fragmented group of people, you know, often quite hard to find. They don't even have physical addresses a lot of the time. Mm. So that's our experience. It doesn't mean that somebody listening, that's going to be their experience. Like if you were going after schools, yeah, there's a physical address for every single one of them. Yeah. Um, if you were in the tutoring space, you know, there's a, a much bigger volume of people that you could kind of target. Whereas for us, we can't afford to burn when I say that, you know, uh, disappoint lots and lots of prospects because there's just not as many of them as say the number of you know, students that you could go for exactly. or the number of, if you're in the language education space, the number of potential language learners. Um, yeah. That's no, so, a bit different from B, yeah. B2B. Yeah. Yeah. And we're very much a B2B business. I think LinkedIn has been very strong for me and for us. And I think, again, it hasn't come from a place of, pushing promotions down throats or that kind of thing. But I definitely think for us, the thought leadership space has been quite effective. I don't, and I think part of that might even be because no one else has picked up the mantle. And I, I feel it's, it's opened an opportunity for me and, and, you know, my, my, my team like Willem, for example, to fit that space and, you know, provide real value to people and, and look at, be seen as experts and and to offer resources and ideas for people. Yeah, I mean LinkedIn is such a powerful platform, especially when it comes to connecting with you know that that audience of uh, owners, directors, marketing managers. Yeah. Uh, we even had a, a webinar I think in in June uh, on this topic. So uh, go ahead and uh, find that video on Learn Learn Cube's YouTube channel. Yeah, uh, Alex, what does the future look like for uh, LearnCube and uh, in terms of scaling up? So we um, we kind of went through that growing stage um, in, the, in the years before COVID and then COVID really kind of ramped up our scale mm. and that's kind of uh, opened up some great opportunities for us. Mm. Uh, the next area for us is is again about, you know, I'm just noticing it now. We've got a much bigger team. So like systems and process become so much more important. So for us, um, there's a lot of ways I can go after that. I can look at it from a product perspective, marketing perspective, sales perspective. What do you think would be the the way to approach this, Herbert? What would you like to hear? Which, which future? Um, probably, uh, I, I guess... I mean, when scaling up, you you need more people, and I yeah. think pe the people aspect to um, you know scaling yeah. a company is 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 absolutely vital. So yeah. may maybe in terms of hiring decisions, yeah. uh, identifying your your weak spots in terms of where you need to uh, uh, find someone to to cover that. Yeah. No, I think actually that that's a great way because I think everybody will relate to that, um, particularly mm. as soon as you're going from like a smaller team to a a medium-sized team where we're at. And um, so the first thing that I got right, uh, I think, was I was, I was able to identify some really self-motivated, passionate, and highly competent people. Um, I think management becomes not needed when you have that kind of self-starter. And so mm. most of the work needs to go on the recruitment stage. Yeah, uh, because you, it's very hard to manage somebody after that. If you've got somebody you require you're required to manage as such, that's really hard. That's like setting yourself up with like 
a job just to manage them. Yeah. And I feel like, um, and I've seen it with some of, like I, I came across a tutoring business recently and I was you know, having a great chat with the owner and he introduced me to one of his team members and that team member had been with him since the beginning. And it was like, he was telling the story about how, you know, he was busy kind of throwing papers around the place and she was busy kind of organizing them before she knew it, she had this operations job. And I feel like we had a similar kind of experiences. We were able to find somebody in our operations team. And that for me was, was a huge, I think they're sometimes the most important, probably the most important person to go from like growing your base to scaling up as that mm -hmm. operations person. Yeah. And we were able to finally get some proper systems uh, in terms of like our support is really gone. You know, it, it really went from like, you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff around the place <laughs> that we we're able, but we had smaller numbers. So we were still able to offer good support. It just wasn't very efficient um, or highly scalable to a really highly scaling, highly efficient support team where we get great feedback um, mm -hmm. and we have systems where we're not, losing people all the time i think a big part with that scaling is you keep on losing people if you don't have systems absolutely uh, you'll and same thing with sales like if you don't have a good sales system mm -hmm. and to be fair like i think we've had to go through our own process with that we had some sales systems we built some some sort of failed and we kind of didn't get those right and i feel like even recently we really improved our sales process and part of that is introducing this new pilot um, concept where instead of just dumping our people into our product and saying, hey, here you go, and then having people go like, oh, this isn't the same and and feeling like, you know, quite uh, anxious about it. We've now got this pilot scheme, which gives people uh, a lot of confidence, training, like access. And that's a big thing when you're starting is this. And that's all part of the sort of post-sale process. And, and then the pre-sale process, we've got many more systems to make sure that people you know, are getting help with filling in their checklists, are knowing what the prices are, are getting um, their questions answered. And and that money back guarantee is a big one for us as well. We offer a money back guarantee with our online school okay. product for 30 days. And that really um, diminishes the need to kind of answer every question upfront. And it also means that customers have that sense of, oh, well, you must be pretty confident if you're able to offer a 30 day 30-day money-back guarantee, which, again, so these are just examples of what needed to happen, but yeah. operations was critical, and then mm -hmm. systems, and I've kind of alluded to those, like onboarding systems, sales systems, yeah. and now kind of marketing systems. And in a way, what we're doing with this podcast is a system, like absolutely, we know that we have to do one regularly. We know kind of what the format looks like. I think now we're really enjoying it because we don't have to worry about what it is. It's like, this is what we do and this is how often we do it. And, and it just becomes the habit. So I think that's, that's a big one with scaling up. And I imagine that the big next stage for LearnCube is uh, going to be turning up from. Yeah. So like, I think the next big thing for us with scaling is going to be efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think getting those systems so they're probably even more automated than they, they are now. And then I think the next part is also building, you know, the team and also inviting team members that have experience that we as founders or as the team don't have. Exactly. And probably people that have been there and can pull us up rather than us always having to be the experts. So 
that's kind of where we're at next. Well, I think that's a great way to cap things off for this episode. Thanks so much, uh, Alex, uh, for joining us uh, and letting uh, uh, you you know, share your story uh, with the audience today. We talked about how to find product market fit uh, for your education business. And we went through you know, uh, those five steps uh, from idea to finding a minimum viable product, uh, finding initial customers, growing that base of customers, and then scaling up. Thanks again, Herbert. Um, and Herbert, where can people find you? Uh, on herbertgozo.com. And you can learn more about LearnCube at www.learncube.com. But again, thanks very much for joining the Get More Students podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye.